Hey, how we doing? Um, grab your Bibles and turn to um, the book of Galatians. We're going to be in the sixth chapter. I'm actually going to be bouncing around a little bit this morning, but if uh, you want to take your Bibles, turn to Galatians 6. We've got ushers coming down the rows. If you're visiting or forgot your Bible, please just raise your hand. They'll get God's Word into your hand. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that um, as our gift. How are you guys doing this morning? Are you tired? Are, are you guys Coast Guarded out? Like, like, how many of you guys have been hanging around Grand Haven the last few days? How many of you guys read fireworks last night? Okay. I live in downtown Grand Haven. So technically, I don't go to Coast Guard. Coast Guard comes to me. And so it's, it's an unavoidable part of life every year. I have lived downtown the last couple of years before living downtown. Um, I officed above Great Harvest Bread Company. And um, every year, they would set up the carnival and um, right outside my window, for whatever reason, I don't know why they did it, but they had that silly game where you take the hammer and you hit the thing and you try to send the thing up to ring the bell. And when somebody wasn't playing the game, what it would do is every 10 seconds, it would go bloop, 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 bloop for a week outside my window. And, and so here's what I will tell you. I'm not, I'm not one of these local guys who are like, oh, I can't stand Coast Guard. I actually like Coast Guard. I like the energy. Um, I think the Coast Guard is worthy of being celebrated. I like the fireworks. We were on the roof of our building last night watching fireworks. Not a big fan of the traffic, um, but I'm from Chicago, so it's kind of that mental reminder. I'm so glad I moved to Western Michigan um, to get out of that. Here's what I don't like. Um, I don't like the carnival. Particularly, I don't like some of the carnies. And uh, I like the food. I don't have a problem with that. It's the games that bother me. So like you go down to the carnival and you, you take your money and you buy the rings and you throw them to see if you can land them on the bottles. You know what I'm talking about? Because you want to win the big stuffed animal that they have on display. And after you spend about 20 bucks, you get your ring to land on the bottle and then the guy behind the counter reaches below the counter and he pulls out this goofy little stupid stuffed animal where you thought the game was to win the big stuffed animal. Do you know what I'm talking about? So you're like, what is the deal? Like, and he's like, no, you got to win three of those and then you can trade it in for a medium and if you get two of those, you can get to the large. I'm like, well, that would have been good to know before I dropped 20 to try to put my rings on the stupid bottle. So I, I don't like the bait and switch. And... Um, I would say that it's not just carnivals. Um, I think our culture is really, really good at bait and switch. This week on, um, I think it was Thursday night, I went to see um, Mission Impossible, the new Mission Impossible movie with my son-in-law Austin and my daughter Catherine. Now, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, um, Tom Cruise is getting really old. You gotta know that before you go. Um, so you just gotta be prepared for that. But, but the other piece of it is um, driving home from the movie um, Catherine and Austin started to tell me about this song. They really wanted me to hear the song, and uh, it wasn't on my playlist, but it was on my son-in-law's playlist, which is sad because of his musical taste. But there was a song released by an artist by the name of Demi Lovato. Maybe some of you have heard of her. She was a child star. She started on the show Barney, the dancing purple dinosaur. And then she went up through the ranks of Disney, and she's been a popular a very, very successful performer. Well, about a month ago, she released a new song called Sober. And that is a song Catherine and Austin wanted me to hear because 
Um, in essence, what she did through her new song, she announced to her fans that she was no longer sober. She had had um, a problem with substances maybe six years ago and uh, was back again, uh, kind of off the wagon of sobriety. And uh, the release of that song was followed on July 24th with an overdose, which was followed by a hospitalization, which I believe has now led to another extended stay in rehab. And I, and I hear a story like that, and I'm saying, how many times do we have to see this same story repeat itself over and over again in our culture with our young people who have a taste of fame, they have a taste of wealth, they have a taste of success, but the things that they thought would make them happy actually drive them to despair. See, our culture always entices us with things saying, hey, if you have this, if you get this, then you will win this. But the reality is too many times what our culture promises will satisfy us doesn't satisfy us. And in response to that, as followers of Jesus Christ, we aren't called to distance ourselves from the world. We're called to live in the world, his salt and light, and provide a contrast in the way we live and provide a glimpse to people of what truly satisfies. It says in 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared in the way that we live, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, if we're going to live in a way that we are prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within us, I think we have to start by having a hope that's within us. Wouldn't you agree? And, and we have to live distinct lifestyles so that the world can see the contrast. That's what followers of Jesus Christ are called to do. Now, I find it interesting, even as I look at that passage, the last thing that I want to do in, in this church, in any church, I don't want to be a carnival preacher. I don't want to promise that Christianity is going to deliver something that it will not. And I think sometimes in our enthusiasm to explain the gospel and to tell people about the gospel, what we inevitably do is we begin to say, come to Jesus and your marriage will be fixed. Come to Jesus and your kids will turn out great. Come to Jesus and your bills will be paid. Come to Jesus and, and we begin to promise things that the gospel was not implicitly intended to deliver. Now, please hear me in this. I've seen many people come to Jesus Christ and had their marriage affected and saved and positively transformed. I've seen many lives transformed by the power of the gospel. But here's the reality. The exchange is not you follow Jesus Christ and all your problems are going to go away and your life is going to be easy. It says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, hear this, it says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I looked at that word easy this week. It is a word that is used in different passages throughout the New Testament. This is the only verse in the New Testament where this word is translated easy. In Luke 5.39, it is translated better. In Luke 6.35, it is translated kind. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, it's translated good. In 2 Peter 2.3, it is translated gracious. 
So when Jesus says, take my yoke for it is better, for it is gracious, for it is good, the inherent promise is not that it is easy. And please hear me. I'm not arguing that Christianity is not a great choice. Strike that. Best choice. Strike that. The only choice where we can know the joy we are intended to know by our creator God. I fully believe that in Christ there is fullness of joy. But to believe that the life of the follower of Jesus Christ is going to be without its problems and without its difficulties, it just isn't true. What I want to talk about this morning in the time that we have is I want to talk to you about the rhythm of following Jesus Christ, the different seasons, the patterns that a typical follower of Jesus Christ will experience throughout their walk with Jesus Christ. For the last few months, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, been asking this question, are you really a follower of Jesus Christ? And what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? This morning, I want to explain to you, just for a moment, the different seasons that your journey in following Jesus Christ will typically take you through and then I'm going to give you examples of this from the Old Testament because we see it throughout scripture hopefully you will see this pattern in your life but to illustrate it let me refer to the four seasons we're going to start with winter okay can you throw up that slide do you guys remember winter right <laughs> like, like I don't mean this wrong that slide's a little bit cruel and unusual to be showing y'all in August now if you live in Florida or Hawaii or Arizona you don't understand seasons so let me explain to you, in about three months here, how hot is it outside? Is it like 80 degrees outside? You guys were just out there, I wasn't. Okay, what's that? 90? Okay, take 90 and drop the zero. It's going to be nine in about four months. And it's going to be freezing cold, and we're going to be shoveling, and our cars won't start, and we're going to be having ice scrapers on our windows. You guys remember winter, right? In the life of the believer, we all go through a season of winter. We're there before Christ reveals himself to us. Before we are saved, we are in a season of winter. So if you're keeping notes next to winter, just write the word dormant or dormancy. Write dormant, it's easier to spell, okay? It's a season where we're dormant. And we're told in Ephesians 2 that before we come to Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And it's not that we aren't physically alive, but we're going through life not experiencing all that life was intended for us to enjoy. In Titus, Paul is writing about the widows in his church, and he is saying you need to be supportive of the widows, but be careful. There are some widows who have devoted themselves to a life of self-indulgence, and because of their self-indulgence, though they are alive, they are actually dead. Winter can be a season before Christ, and I would argue for some of us, winter is a season that we return to when we rebel from Christ. And you can find yourself in winter, in a season of cold, in a season of darkness, not just because you haven't come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but you have chosen to turn your back on your Savior Jesus Christ, and you are absorbed in self-indulgence. So that's winter. After winter comes spring. Again, if you're keeping notes, write in the blank next to spring, the word renewal. Spring is a season where typically something happens in you. It might be the point where you come to Christ. It might be the point that you return to Jesus Christ. It might be when Christ calls you. It might be God calling you back home. But it is a moment where there is a decision, and usually that decision is brought on by a crisis. 
We've been doing baptisms this weekend, and it's interesting, in the testimonies, you often hear that I came to Saving Faith because of a crisis. On Saturday night, we baptized a lady and her son. The son was about 15 years old, and he gave his testimony first, and then the mom stepped up, and she said when he was born, he had a heart condition that required surgery, but he was too weak for surgery, but they couldn't wait for him to get stronger, so they had to do emergency surgery, and we were dropped to our knees. And that was the beginning of our faith journey with Christ because we realized we were in a crisis and we needed God to show up in a big way. Typically, spring begins with some sort of crisis that drives you to a decision point where maybe for the first time or maybe again in your life, you are now interested in something that I would call the will of God, doing what God calls you to do. In that season of spring... Well, let me just read to you from Ephesians 5. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, now I don't want to beat this point to death this morning. About five years ago, I preached through a sermon series called Decision Point, four weeks on discovering the will of God. And I just want to hit some of the highlights of that because a lot of people get confused. Like, what is the will of the Lord? Does he have a specific plan for my life? As it relates to God's will, let's start with what's clear. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, you want to know what God's will is? This is the will of God. Couldn't be any clearer than that. Your sanctification. What does sanctification mean? It means that you are changing. You can't take salvation and separate that from transformation. If you have been saved, you should see changes in your life. Changes in behavior, changes in desires, changes in what your pursuits are. God didn't die just to save you. He died to change you. And if you're not seeing change in your life because of the decision that you made to follow Jesus Christ, it would be very difficult for me to give you assurance that you are actually saved. So God's will is that we are changed. In order to be changed, we have to live differently than the world. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's another question as it relates to God's will. How do we know what God's specific will is for our lives? Does he have a specific person we're supposed to marry? Is there a school that we're supposed to attend? Is there a job that we're supposed to take? Is there a neighborhood or a home that we're supposed to live in? Does he have specific will for our lives? Okay. The answer to that is no. Let me explain. God has a declared will. It is revealed throughout scripture. There are promises that God has made and when we trust in God's promises, we are following his will. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says that he will not begin a work in you that he won't take until completion. He says that he will unconditionally love us when we surrender and seek his forgiveness. These are promises. These are his declared will. And because they are his promises and God does what he says he's going to do, we can trust in his declared will. There is also God's desired will, the things that he is calling us to do to be obedient to. And when we follow God's desired will, 
that creates relationship with him and it brings blessing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So you've got his declared will, his promises. You've got his desired will, the things that he is calling us to do. We just spent a ton of time in the Sermon on the Mount looking at things like don't judge and build your house on a solid foundation and we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are all things in his desired will, but his basically um, specific will, not his declared will, not his desired will, but his will of direction. When we are looking for God to speak into the specific decisions that we have to make and we are waiting on God to reveal his um, directive will, it's a mess. And quite honestly, too many Christians take pause waiting for God's directive will and they take um, some sort of lame spiritual peace in the fact that they are doing nothing while they wait for God's will. Now, how does God reveal his will to us when we face different decisions? Well, here's one way, through his word. We want to make sure that we're consistent in his word, with his word and what his word instructs in the decisions that we make. Um, should I go out uh, last night into Grand Haven and get blasted in the beer tent? Nah, I would say that that's pretty clear in God's will. Okay, the other thing you do is you seek wise counsel. Not just what his word says, but wise counsel. So God reveals his will to you through his word, through wise counsel. And here's a third way. Sometimes through dreams, through other things, God can have direct communication where he reveals his will. Here's the, thi here's the thing with number three. It is the exception to the rule. It is not the norm of the rule. And too often people are so desirous to get God's will through number three that they ignore one and two. Some cautions with number three. It is very hard to distinguish between God giving you a dream and indigestion from what you ate the night before. So you want to run that special revelation through the grid. Is it consistent with his word? And does wise counsel validate that this is God speaking? You got to be very careful with that because too often I have seen people say God says in a way to shut down discussion and allow them to do the thing that they actually wanted to do on their own. I hope that makes some sense. Here's another thing. In God having a specific will or a directive will, what bothers me about it is the math stinks. So let's say that God has a specific person that you are supposed to find, your soulmate that you are supposed to marry. How do you find this person in a country of 300 million people. What if she's on Match.com and you're on eHarmony? Problem. Okay? And oh, the, the, the math gets really bad if she happens to be overseas. But some people believe this, that there's one specific person that God has sent them on mission to find. And what's sadder is when you sit with a husband and he looks at you and he says, I think I married the wrong woman. I think I was out of God's will when I got married and this is the wrong woman and to complicate it, now we've had kids and I'm not even sure they're supposed to be here. That's the problem with believing that God's will is a dot. Husbands, let me help you. If you are struggling and wondering whether you married the right woman, you will know that you married the right woman because the woman that you were supposed to marry is the woman that you married. Does that make sense? Once you've married her, you don't got to wonder what God's will is. <laughs> and I tease, but
But there are, and the reason that I'm, I'm, I'm taking a moment to say this is there are people in this room that have made bad decisions in their past and they believe that for the rest of their lives, all they were experienced is something less than God's best in their life. And it's not true. Spring is a season of renewal where you make choices, where you choose to follow the will of God. And when we plant good things in the ground, he has promised us a good harvest. After spring comes summer. Galatians 6 verse 7 finally made it to our text. It says this, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Okay, so in the progressions of seasons, there is a season where we are dead or we are in rebellion. Then there is a season, spring, which is in renewal. The summer season, in that blank, write the word proofing. When um, uh, Kristen and I, we started a company in Grand Haven, uh, Great Harvest Bread Company, like 18 years ago. And in the first few years of that company, I was one of the bakers. I baked maybe three times a week. And one of the things that I learned about bread is it's a little bit of a slow process. It takes four or five hours. And first you make the mixture and then you've got to give it about an hour and then it rises and then you take it to the kneading table and you form it into loaves or swirls or whatever you're doing. And then you have to take a time to put it on what we call the proofing racks. And if you take a, a loaf of bread directly from uh, the kneading table and put it into the oven, it doesn't have time to rest, it doesn't have time to settle, and what you want to be a round loaf now becomes a cone loaf. It doesn't bake properly. So you take a moment and you set this bread off the kneading table which is firm and it is hard and you put it on the proofing rack and eventually it softens up and it relaxes and when it's proofed properly, that's when you put it into the oven. That's what summer is. It is a season of waiting. When I mentioned summer, did they put up a picture of the beach in Grand Haven? Okay, that's not what I'm talking about is summer, okay? When you think summer, don't think beach in Grand Haven in this time of year that we all look forward to. Think summer in Tempe, Arizona. Okay, here's a picture that I found on the internet. You guys have that? Oh yeah, so, so this is Tempe, Arizona. Somebody took their garbage to the curb and the garbage can melted. Summer is a season of testing. It is testing our resolve. The things that we decided to do in the spring, the decisions that we made are now tested. It is a season of waiting. It can also lead to a season, if we are not careful, of discouragement. It's in the summer months where God is growing our faith. It is in the summer months where he is testing our resolve. At Harvest, we have a saying to describe what faith is because I didn't understand really what, when I say you got to have faith, you got to know what that means. And we call faith, just our definition, believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, because God promises a good result. Summer is that phrase, no matter how I feel. Because there's some that could be in this room that it says, listen, I've made a decision to follow Jesus Christ and I'm praying for some things and I'm believing some things and I'm trying to have faith in God, but you know what? The areas of my life, I'm not experiencing the blessing of God. I would love it 
if when we planted something in the spring, there was immediate harvest in that same season. That would make farming way easy, wouldn't it? Like if you planted something, it came out the next day like it was some sort of Shia pet, like that would be awesome. <laughs> but that's not the way life works. There is a delay between what we plant and what we harvest. If life worked in such a way that we immediately bore the consequences of the decisions and the actions that we chose to do, I'm telling you, we would make way different decisions, wouldn't you agree? But it's that season in summer where we begin to believe that we won't harvest what we sow, that God can be mocked. And this is why Paul in this passage says, do not be deceived. Because in the summer months, in that waiting between planting and harvesting, between sowing and reaping, we begin to believe that there is a disconnect and that what God said isn't true and the things that we planted will not grow to a harvest. I hate summer, not Michigan summers, Tempe summers. Seasons when I have to wait. You guys had seasons where you've waited on the Lord, not sure why he's called you or what he's called you to do? Sometimes those seasons are long. Like, why did I go to Bible school in 1982 to become a pastor in 2010? Sometimes God makes you wait. Sometimes he's growing you, he's preparing you for the things that he's called you to do that summer. Do not become discouraged in the summer months. Do not be a, a grumbler and a complainer if you're waiting on God. When the nation of Israel was in the wilderness, when they were in that summer season, when they were waiting on the promised land and entry into the promised land, they tended to grumble and complain. And God's response, you can read about it, read about it in Numbers 11, back to the wilderness you go. Hebrews 10 35 says, don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. Okay, so what follows winter and a season of dormancy, what follows spring and a season of renewal and what follows summer is fall. Right next to the word fall, harvest. It is a season where we reap what God has promised. Now, I'm taking you back to the text because I've got to start with bad news first before I can move to the good. Verse 8 says this, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Let me break this down so it's easy to understand what Paul is trying to say. That word flesh there, when it talks about sowing to the flesh, to understand the word flesh just Take that word, take the H off the end and read it backwards. It's self. When we live for self, we are planting seed in the ground that will eventually lead to a bitter harvest. The word Paul uses is corruption. That word corruption in the text actually means a decaying body. I can't be more clear or more severe than Paul is in the words that he chose. He says, when you plant in the ground self-indulgence, living for self, what happens is it leads to death. That word corruption means trouble in this life, eternal damnation later. That is what he is teaching in this text. Hosea, the prophet Hosea in chapter 10 verse 13, talks about some that will reap a bitter harvest. He says, you have plowed iniquity, 
You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. And the reason that I take time to talk about a harvest, there are some in this room that look back over the course of their life and they say, I've planted some pretty bad crops. And quite honestly, as I look at my life, I'm reaping the consequences of choices that I've made in the past and it's a bitter harvest. Two things I want you to hear very, very clearly from me. Here's number one. You can't change what you planted yesterday. You can't change it. We can't go back in time. We can't change. We can't remove ourselves from the consequences of past decisions. That is the reality and one of the truths and hardships in life. Would you agree? But here's the second thing that you've got to hear just as clearly. You can determine, you can make a choice of what you will plant today. And we can make a choice that despite what we've done in our past, despite the crops that we've planted, the seed that we've sowed in our lives before today, we can't change that. But we can make a choice to plant good seed today and see if God won't bless that. When the prophet Hosea was warning the people that, hey, you have planted bad seed and now you are reaping a bitter harvest, it was in the context of a nation in rebellion and idolatry that was about to fall into captivity. But please hear the heart of God, even in the words of Hosea, the verse preceding the verse I just read to you. Look what it says in Hosea 10, verse 12. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness on you. Despite what is in your past, you have not set the course for the rest of your life that you are going to miss God's best in the future. God is calling us in this passage, do not be deceived, you will reap what you sow, and the only choice you can make is will you follow God today? There are some in this room, it needs to be a springtime in your life. You need to make a choice to follow the Lord I would hate to think that there are some in here that believe that they can go through life living for self and then come every Sunday and pray for crop failure. That's not how it works. Listen, God is the God of grace, amen? And often he spares us from the consequences we deserve. The whole message of the gospel is Jesus in our place, taking the wrath of God which we deserved, and while he took God's hostility, we get clothed with his righteousness because we have chosen to trust in his name. God is a God that is for you. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy, but he is calling you to make a choice and a decision. What are you going to plant today? This pattern, summer or winter, spring, summer, fall, look at it in the life of some of the Old Testament saints. For example, Abram, who will later be called Abraham. In Genesis 12, we find him. He doesn't know the Lord. He's living with his family in a land called Haran. That's how chapter 11 ends. At the beginning of chapter 12, it says, God appears to Abram, and he says, I want you to go to a different country. I want you to move your family. He spoke to Abram. The key in this is uh, Genesis 12, 4. It says, Abram did what God asked him to do. So you see a winter in Haran. You see a moment of renewal where he chooses to do what God's called him to do that spring. And he goes and in chapter 15, God promises Abram that he will make him the father of many nations. 
problem, and here comes summer, Aaron has a barren wife, Sarah. So year after year, he waits in a season of testing, in a season of seeing if God's going to be faithful, even when it seems impossible. And he waits, and they get past the childbearing years, and God begins to test his faith, and Abram takes his wife Sarah's handmaiden and tries to take things into his own hands, and eventually God fulfills what he promised that he would do, and he gives him a son, Isaac. And you're like, yay, finally the blessing, he's to fall. Uh, Not yet, Abram gets to go through an Indian summer. And God says, no, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice Isaac on a mountain to prove your love for me. And Abraham takes Isaac onto a mountain, and in that moment, a picture of the gospel is given to us where God provides a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac, and we are told that God keeps his promises in sparing Isaac. He does what he says he's going to do. It's interesting, Galatians 3.29 says this, he says, if you are in Christ, talking today to the followers of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All of us are proof that God does what he says that he's going to do because it was through the line of Abraham that he provided a savior, Jesus Christ, of which we are all benefactors of the promise to Abraham. God keeps his promise, but he walked him through the seasons. How about David? David starts as a shepherd. Remember that? That's his winter. But then Samuel comes and says, you're going to be king. That's the renewal in the the spring. But he spends the next season being chased around the Judean wilderness, getting spears thrown at him as Saul tries to kill him before he receives the harvest of what God promised, that he is on the throne in Israel. I can keep going. How about Moses? 40 years in the wilderness, and then he has his spring moment, which is the burning bush, which says, I need you to go deliver my people. And so he follows, he goes to Egypt, he moves off of what God has asked him to do. But when he gets to Egypt, Pharaoh's not fired up about giving up his slave labor force. So he has met with resistance, a season of testing. But after that becomes the deliverance and God fulfills what he promised to Moses. This is a repeated pattern. These these seasons, this rhythm in the life of the believer. I could talk about pastors on our staff. The last two seasons I've talked about, or the last two sermons I've talked about Adam and Haley Dollar. Quite honestly, I could pick almost any pastor on our staff. I could talk about Pastor Eric and his time in ministry out in California, but going through kind of a wilderness season before he got here at harvest and God has planted this call. But I'm telling you what, if God has called him to something, I'm telling you, there's going to be testing along the way as he plants in Fremont. It's going to follow the seasons. You guys saw Marty Gravelin up here. I remember five years ago when Marty came to me and, you know, Marty, he's got those movie star good looks. And, and had life by the tail and wife and kids and successful job and career. But behind the scenes, life was in chaos. And God got a hold of his heart. That was spring. And it was a moment of salvation for Marty where he committed to follow the Lord. But then what that started was a journey where I'm telling you, he had to break old habits and old restraints and he was working here and trying to serve the Lord and he got in small group and then he led a small group and he was working in children's ministry and trying to do everything that God had called him to do. And then Marty came to me and he's like, you know, I really feel like God's got his call on my life that he wants me to go into full-time ministry. And I was the test. I'm like, no, he doesn't. And he came to me and he said, listen, if the church was ever hired, I'm like, we're not. And he's like, I'm ready. And I'm like, no, you're not. Like, 
What kind of guy wants to take a 75% pay cut to come on staff at a church? Like, I don't understand this. You want to take my place? Maybe I'll take your job. How hard is it, you know? And God was calling him, and I'm saying, no, no, no. But the right opportunity came up, and Marty's come on staff, and he is killing it as a small groups pastor. But he had to go through a season of testing where it didn't seem obvious that God was going to open any door or any opportunity for him for ministry. You see the pattern repeated over and over. So here's my question to you this morning. What season are you in? What season is this for you? Thinking about this for Kristen and I, and um, for us in a lot of ways, we're in that season um, of harvest. We've been married 35 years. We're we're reaping a harvest of blessing in our marriage because of choices of faithfulness throughout the years. We're seeing that in our ministry with our grandkids. Kristen and I can look back over all the seasons of life, winter, spring, summer, and fall, and we can declare that God has been faithful in all seasons. You can't always see it in the midst of the struggle, but sometimes you can look back over God's seasons and say, hey, he's been faithful the entire journey. What season are you in? And then just here's the second question. What's your next move? To promise that Christianity is going to make your life easy is a bait and switch. To promise that Christianity will lead to God's favor and a choice to repent and follow Jesus Christ, his Savior, that you're going to, ta- you're going to taste relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to taste God's favor, you're going to know his blessing, that is absolute, true, and accurate advertising. But you have to make a choice. What season are you in and what's your next move? In following God's will, I don't think it's anywhere near as complicated as people try to make it. Can I just give you some scripture? Here's a verse I read it earlier. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Look at the next phrase. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Hey, you want to know what the word of God is? Abstain from sexual immorality. You want to know what the will of God is? If you're not married, don't be having sex outside of marriage. It's that clear. If you're married, quit lusting after things or engaging in things outside of your marriage. You want to experience God's favor? You want to plant good seed? Flee sexual immorality. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know what's God's will? Pray. How often? Without ceasing. Make your life a life of surrender. Be grateful. Have an attitude of gratitude in your life. See if God won't bless that. Here's the third, 1 Peter 4.2. So so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's surrender. All the things that we pursue that we think can satisfy us will not satisfy. Here's the will of God. Quit living after your own passions. Surrender yourself. Put put Jesus on the throne of your life. I think scripture is really clear. Can I give you another clear command of God for some of you in this room? And it's crystal clear in scripture. Be baptized. At the start of the church, when Peter is speaking at Pentecost, 
He gives his message, and the resolve of that message was repent and be baptized. He didn't ask the people to say a prayer. He didn't ask them to raise their hands. He didn't ask them to walk an aisle. He said, the followers of Jesus Christ need to repent and be baptized. Why baptism? Why make such a big deal? Here's why. Because at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he chose to get baptized. Why did Jesus get baptized? He was without sin. He didn't need to repent. His baptism was identifying with us. It was the first thing he did in his earthly ministry to take on our sin. And he has called us, his followers of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to respond in like kind. You need to be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Now, some of you were baptized as infants. Please hear my heart in this. That's a great thing. I celebrate that. That means that your parents wanted to see God involved in your life and for you to become or reach a point in your life where you would come to saving faith. That's a wonderful thing. That's a blessing to have parents that desired that for you. But that's not this. This is a believer confessing that he has given his life to Jesus Christ. That was a choice that they made for you. This baptism is a choice that you make. It is a public profession of an inward confession that you have made. This decision is yours. It is not your parents. It is different. And God calls you to be baptized. It's that clear. Now, I, I realize, because I can feel, can you guys feel tension in the room? I'm being pretty passionate about this. I'm being pretty aggressive. And there's some of you that are getting angry. I can see it in your faces. It's like, I don't like you pushing me into a decision. Please hear my compassion in this. I don't care. It's my job as your pastor and your shepherd to encourage you to do what God's called you to do. That's what I'm called to do. And the Bible is clear. He's called you to be baptized. It is never right to say, well, let me consider that or I'll think about it. When are you told in Scripture to think about what you need to do when you've been called to do something in obedience? Some of you are like, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. You don't have to prepare yourself to be obedient. We have elders, we have elders' wives, we have staff that are willing to meet with you to answer any questions. Baptism is not complicated. It is an act of obedience in response to what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And some of you need to start sowing good seed. You need to make decisions of obedience, believing that God will bless that in the future. We know that God's promises are true. The only thing we don't know is whether or not you'll come. And maybe please consider that that stirring in your soul and that unrest when I talk about baptism, maybe it's just not the raving pastor standing on stage, but maybe it's the Holy Spirit convicting you to do what he's called you to do. I fully believe that God's word is true. And when we sow obedience, we reap blessings. In a moment, the band's going to play. And uh, all you have to do is come up front. My wife is waiting right there. She's going to usher you through that hallway. You're going to meet with an elder just quickly to make sure that you have been saved before you confess that you've been saved. We've thought of everything. There's nothing you need that we haven't thought of. The only question is, will you respond in obedience? Will you come? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. And um, Father, my prayer would be that we would not be deceived. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for making your will clear. It would be my prayer in this moment that some would have the courage to do what they're fearful of doing, taking a step of obedience and following you. Father, may this be for them a season of renewal, a springtime, a moment that they can look back on and say, I chose, even though I didn't want to, or even though I was scared, I chose to do what you'd called me to do, believing that you will do what you said that you would do. Give them the courage to trust in your promises that when we choose to be obedient, we will reap a harvest of your blessing. It's in your great name we pray.